Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. It's your Friday News Buzz edition of River to River. From IPR News, I'm Ben Kiefer. Coming up, Iowa pork producers record their worst losses in 25 years. We'll talk with a a farmer in just a few minutes. Also, the case of an Iowa police chief charged with illegal machine gun purchases. But first, let's get a quick Statehouse update from IPR state government reporter Katerina Sestarek. Hi, Katerina. Hi, Ben. Lawmakers have been in session for about a month now. A flurry of bills introduced, as usual, during the early weeks. Next week, the first funnel deadline. Let's talk about some of the bills advancing. Uh, Give us an update, first of all, on a bill from Governor Reynolds that would define man and woman based on a person's sex at birth. Right. So that bill was kind of fast-tracked through a committee this week in the Iowa House. There was a subcommittee on Tuesday and then Later that day, it was advanced through a committee as well. Um, And so this bill essentially directs government bodies to identify people by their sex at birth. It would allow certain facilities like prisons, locker rooms, and domestic violence shelters to separate people based on their sex assigned at birth. And people who are transgender would also have to list their sex at birth on their birth certificate, but not on their driver's license. That was in the original bill. um, And the House Education Committee removed that part of the bill. Um, There were just a lot of people who showed up at this subcommittee hearing earlier this week saying, you know, having to put that their transgender on their driver's license would be discriminatory and it would put them in danger in some situations. Um, And that, you know, they, they felt that part of the bill was especially egregious, but transgender people still have a lot of concerns about the rest of the bill. Um, You know, proponents of this bill, like Governor Kim Reynolds and some other people who spoke at this um, subcommittee hearing, said that it's needed to protect spaces that they feel should only be for women by their definition, people who are women as defined by their sex assigned at birth. Um, But there's other concerns about, you know, putting a transgender woman in a prison that is for men. You know, there's a lot of um, Mm -hmm. concerns about that, too, safety concerns on the other side. Um, So this has um, gotten through the funnel deadline, and we'll see, you know, if it goes further. Iowa would become one of the last states to extend Medicaid coverage for pregnant women 12 months after giving birth uh, under a bill advanced in uh, the Senate. Tell us more about this one. This was also proposed by Governor Kim Reynolds. Um, It's been considered in the legislature in prior years, being brought up by other lawmakers. Um, But this is something that um, the concept of it has bipartisan support. It would extend postpartum Medicaid coverage. Instead of the current 60 days after giving birth, people would be able to retain that health coverage for a year after giving birth. Um, But the way that Governor Kim Reynolds' bill does this It would be to also change the eligibility requirements for people, pregnant people, to get this health coverage in the first place. Um, And so right now it would become um, less inclusive. So fewer people would be able to qualify based on their income level. Um, And and this way the state would not end up spending more money on pregnancy and postpartum coverage. It would be what they call budget neutral. Um, So this is something where, you know, Um, Republicans are moving it forward. Democrats are saying, you know, we really want to extend postpartum coverage, but we think we should leave it at the current income eligibility requirements so that um, just more people can qualify for the coverage. 
We focused a lot of coverage on the, the governor's proposal to overhaul the state's special education system, area education agencies, so-called AEAs. An update there? So far, that bill has not gotten through a committee. Um, so that is still, you know, a question going into next week of will the governor's area education agencies bill get through this funnel deadline? Um Included in that bill is, you know, also her proposal to increase minimum teacher pay. Um, So that kind of leaves the question, too, of where does it leave that proposal? But ultimately, both of these things are dealing with money. And that means even if this bill doesn't get through this commit this week, next week, um, and it's technically dead, Leaders have lots of ways to bring back proposals, especially things that do with money at any time during the session. So it doesn't necessarily mean that the concept is dead for the session. Mm -hmm. A bill advancing that would allow city councils in the state to take power from library boards. Tell us about that one. Yeah, so this is a bill that advanced in the House yesterday. Um, there were a bunch of library directors and people who serve on library boards of trustees around the state who were there to oppose the bill. Um, this would essentially allow city councils to make big changes to library boards, um, even to replace them, without putting it to a vote of the, of the residents of the city. Right now, that is what the current law is, is that city residents would get to decide by a referendum if there would be any big changes to a library board. Um, And so there's a lot of concerns that this would politicize libraries and that city councils also just have, you know, too much um, on their plate already to then also be involved in directly managing a library. Um, But some proponents of this bill, you know, say that essentially city councils are are the people who are elected to manage taxpayer dollars. So why shouldn't they have a bigger say in what goes on Mm -hmm. in libraries? Mm-hmm. And in the final minute, to tell us about a bill to limit lawsuits over pesticide-related illnesses. Yeah, so um, this would be, you know, kind of in the vein of bills we've seen in the past um, couple years that would limit liability related to medical malpractice and trucking accidents. Um, this would uh, limit liability for pesticide manufacturers when people sue them alleging that they got a serious illness from being exposed to pesticides. Um, So this is something that's supported by um, big pharmaceutical and chemical companies like Bayer and Syngenta, which is now owned by the Chinese government. Um, And it would, you know, there are just concerns from trial lawyers that this would really cut off the one way that people have to get compensated for pesticide-related illness. Um, Now, these companies say it wouldn't actually cut off all lawsuits, um, but Effectively, you know, the people who are representing farmers who are suing over pesticide injuries say it it would really block their effort to seek justice. Okay. IPR state government reporter Katerina Sestarek uh, with an update uh, from uh, the State House. Thanks so much, Katerina. Thanks, Ben. It's a News Buzz edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Well, we know Iowa is the nation's largest pork producer. It's a significant part of our economy. Uh, the pork industry here in the state contributed close to $12 billion to our state's economy in 2020. Um, producers raise about 50 million hogs annually, and our state has 14 pork processing plants uh, employing thousands of workers, and times are troubling for the industry. Uh, Last year was the worst financial downturn in a quarter century for Iowa and U.S. pork producers. It's expected to be the worst 
two-year stretch since record losses were reported in 1998 and 1999. Let's get a view of the downturn from Trish Cook, former president of the Pork Producers Association. She and her husband have raised hogs on a farm in eastern Iowa, north of Cedar Rapids, since the 90s, and she has been on our program before. Hi, Trish. Hi, Ben. Thanks for the opportunity to talk with you today. Well, thanks for joining us again. Um, I referenced the 90s, uh, this turndown, uh, the worst uh, in a quarter century. I, uh, how much does this feel like the losses in the late 90s? Well, in the late 90s, we were early in our farming career. Uh, so as just a little more experienced farmer with a little bar- larger farm than we had in the 90s, the pain is real. It is. Okay. So how has this impacted your farm in particular? And tell us a uh, you know, some particulars about your farm. How many, how many hogs do you raise there? Well, on our farm, we finish out about 30,000 pigs a year. So we, we have fared them on our farm and we raise them up to market weight. So about 280 to 290 pounds. It takes about six months from birth to market for those pigs to make it um, to your plate to be delicious bacon or pork chops. So, and then we, we farm about a thousand acres of corn and soybeans. So we feed all of the corn that we raise to our pigs, but then that's not enough to feed them out. So we also buy corn on the open market to, to raise our hogs. Yeah. So what is this downturn, the worst in a quarter century for pork producers meant for you? Well, you definitely sharpen your pencil when you're working on your budgets and trying to figure things out, but certain things you don't, um, can't, you know, spend less on, and that is taking good care of your animals and feeding them a good quality diet. So the things that we don't spend money then are any types of new equipment or definitely with our, with our grain operation, we don't buy new things on that part of the farm just because, in farming, a lot of the times there's times where you might make money and there's times you're not going to make money. So you're really trying to average things out. But this period of time, especially in the hog industry, is such an extended period of time with the losses that it's going to hurt for a while. And 2024 doesn't look super promising for profits. Uh, mm. Maybe a little more opportunity because the grain prices are less. So Corn and soybean meal are the main two inputs in a pig's diet, and those prices have gone down a lot for for farmers who are buying those to feed to their pigs. Okay, so feed costs dropping, so it looks a little better. Is that what I hear you saying? Yes, it does look a little better on the input side. Um, What we need to see is on the sales side, the revenue side, the hog prices to to be to a level that gives us at least a positive margin or a break-even compared to last year where it was negative $30 a head that went to market. Yeah. So low demand driving down the prices. What's, what's driving down demand? I think there are a number of factors there, aren't there? I think there's, there's several factors in demand. Um, first, exports is a huge part for the pork industry. On any of year, we export 25 to 30% of our pork to our international trading partners with like Mexico, Japan, South Korea, Canada, um, China. Those are the top five. And we had some, the dollar was very strong last year. And so we had some trading partners who maybe went to another country to buy some of their pork. So there's a lot of economic factors that go into it outside of what we think about on the farm when our, where our primary job is to raise a healthy pig and, and to get it to, to consumers for a great protein choice. Um, something that 
is also happening domestically is we have some states that have had ballot initiatives, such as California with Proposition 12 and Massachusetts with, with Question 3, and they're putting some non-scientific regulations on the pork that can be consumed in their state. So California consumes about 13 to 15 percent of total U.S. pork production. So with those stipulations put on on how their, that pork is raised, it definitely is having an impact on demand. We have to take a short break. I'll be back with more of my conversation with Trish Cook uh, about the dire situation for pork producers in the state. Also, the case of an Iowa police chief charged with illegal machine gun purchases. When we return, it's a new edition of River to River from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Back with more River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer talking with Trish Cook. Let's get back to that conversation from earlier today with her. She's former president of the Pork Producers Association. She and her husband uh, have been raising hogs um, in on a farm in eastern Iowa since the 90s, talking about last year being the worst financial downturn in a quarter century for Iowa and U.S. pork producers. Yeah, we've spoken about uh, Proposition 12 in California uh, before, uh, Trish. Uh, not to dig too deeply on that point, but just to remind our audience, the U.S. Supreme Court last year upheld California's Proposition 12 law, which in that state, for pork require, sold in that state, uh, has to come from sows that have enough room to lie down, stand up, extend their legs, turn around freely. Um, and, and so there are standard confinement pens that don't, uh, measure up to these California standards. So that pork may not be sold in California. I wonder, Trish, how many producers in Iowa have, since Proposition 12, added more space, could afford to do that so they could sell pork in that huge market of California? It's a good question. I can't put a number on it. I know a couple of producers just through my interactions with other pig farmers who um, have maybe they were building a new farm at the time, a new sow barn, and they um, put went ahead and, and made it fit those Prop 12 requirements. I don't know a lot of producers who have retrofitted their buildings to make it Prop 12 compliant. Yeah. Okay. So reducing the U.S. pig supply would bolster demand, bolster those prices. Is is that the answer, long term? Well, I think that um, people who are involved in the pork industry now, you've got You've got some small um, folks who are who do a few pigs, or um, you know maybe raise a couple for their friends and neighbors, take to a local locker. But uh, the majority of pork production in the United States is very capital intensive. So a barn that houses 2,500 pigs costs about a million dollars. So people can't; they're not going to just abandon those buildings. They it's part mm. the capital intensity of it is something that you can't just hop in and out of the market. So that's why pork mm. producers generally will try and do as much risk management as they can 
um, on any given point of time to try and, you know, get your inputs locked in or lock in your prices. But if you're never op- offered an opportunity where your margin is positive because of just how the markets have been the last 12 months, that's a very challenging situation. Is it so bad now that some producers, I don't know, you or others uh, you you have contact with are thinking of leaving the industry to do something else with all this investment? That's... Uh, is that something people are thinking about or talking about? I, I guess I haven't really t- heard from folks who are leaving the industry. I have heard of different barns that have been for sale across. Maybe I'm in eastern Iowa, somewhere in the eastern Iowa part of the state. But those are being purchased by someone else who either wants to expand or maybe retire some older facilities. Trish Cook, former president of the Pork Producers Association, and uh, also uh, she, along with her husband, uh, have uh, raised pigs on a farm in eastern Iowa uh, since the 1990s. Well, um, despite these problems, Trish Cook, we, we wish you and your husband well. Thank you for talking with us today. Thank you so much for the opportunity, Ben. It's your News Buzz edition of River to River. From IPR News, I'm Ben Kiefer. A trial began this week for the police chief of Adair, a community on I-80 west of Des Moines. The charges that Bradley Went, who is not only the police chief but also owner of several gun stores, attempted to use his position to acquire a minigun and other machine guns for his personal use or for resale. William Morris is with us. He covers courts for the Des Moines Register. Hello there again, William. Happy to be here. You pointed out in the first line of your article, I'll quote, it's not every day one sees a minigun, an electrified rotary gatling gun capable of firing 3,000 rounds per minute being wheeled on a cart into a federal courtroom. Tell us more about this case and, and what you saw. You actually saw this in the courtroom. It was there. I did actually see, have seen several of these uh, very large and imposing weapons uh, being displayed in court. Uh, if any of your... Uh, listeners have seen Terminator 2. The minigun in question is the same kind of weapon that Arnold Schwarzenegger was using to blow up police cars. So it's not a, a small toy. And we have a bit of sound from an M134 minigun just to give you a taste of that. Let's listen. Well, that's what 3,000 rounds per minute sounds like. Let's go to the prosecution. What is being charged here, William? Uh, Well, let me explain very quickly. Uh, It is generally illegal to uh, buy uh, or sell machine guns in America, uh, with some exceptions. Uh, The relevant exception here is that it is legal to have them for law enforcement use uh, and is legal to transfer them to a gun store if it is for law enforcement use. So what prosecutors say happened is that Bradley Wendt, who is both a police chief and a gun store owner, was writing letters as police chief to himself and other gun store owners as gun store owners, claiming that his department needed these machine guns for use or for demonstration. The Adair Police Department is not very large. They have uh, two sworn officers. But over several years, prosecutors say he um, wrote these letters uh, requesting uh, to buy or to see demonstrations of 80 different machine guns. Mm-hmm. And uh, their evidence uh, that he's this was a ruse just, just to make money? Well, uh, several of the weapons were uh, resold, uh, often for very large uh, profit margins. Uh, one weapon was uh, bought for a little over $2,000, and he sold it for 25000 
that's just a, a sense of the kind of money you can get on the secondary market for these things. Uh, but they've also uh, focused on a couple of these uh, law letters that he wrote that they think just could not plausibly be for police use. Among other things, he requested uh, demonstrations of weapons that he had already requested demonstrations of. Uh, or he um, uh, bought several weapons for the Adair Police Department, sold them at a profit, and on the same day that he sold the last one, prosecutors say, he wrote a letter asking for permission to buy three more. Mm -hmm. So there's uh, a couple of these letters where I think prosecutors believe there's just no possible way to say that this is for a legitimate law enforcement use. And quickly, William, what do Wentz attorneys say in his defense? Uh, well, they've been presenting uh, evidence that you know he had made clear to the ATF that he was both the owner of the gun store and the police chief, that he got permission from uh, the mayor and city council over there, that he did not buy these with public funds. He bought these with his own money. Um, we will hear closing arguments next week, but I would expect prosecutors to respond that all that may be true, but none of that changes whether or not he told the truth to the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, which is what he is charged with not doing. Thanks, William Morris. Uh, William covers courts uh, for the Des Moines Register on this interesting case of a police chief in Iowa uh, using his position. Uh, it's alleged uh, to um, sell machine guns and use them for his personal use. It's your Friday News Buzz edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Let's get small, really, really small, but make our brain power really big because we need to understand this next medical breakthrough. A pair of Iowa State University geneticists are among the first research teams in the world to construct DNA nanoparticles that can express their own built-in genetic instructions. What the heck does that mean? Joining me now, one member of that research team to hopefully explain, Eric Henderson, professor of genetics, development, and cell biology at ISU. He worked with one of his students who is now a postdoc uh, at the University of Wisconsin, Chang Yong Oh, uh, to create these special DNA nanoparticles. Eric Henderson, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's, it's great. I appreciate the invitation. Now, I understand scientists have been making nanoparticles out of DNA strands for two decades. Lay the foundation. What are nanoparticles made out of DNA? Okay. Um, well, it started with a computer scientist named Paul Rodeman, 2006. I uh, was sitting around thinking about DNA, and I have to say something about DNA structure very quickly. If, yes. You know, a way to look at it is like a ladder with rungs, and uh, the rungs um, can be pulled apart in the middle, and then you let go, and they'll reattach exactly the way they were before. So that's how the double helix, the, the iconic double helix is formed. These rungs have, uh, you know, have, have what's called base pairing rules that allow them to attach to each other. So if you pull a DNA helix apart, and, and it's in liquid, and it'll float around, it'll find its partner and reattach and form that perfect twisted ladder all over again. What hmm. Paul thought is, well, what if you pulled one strand apart, got rid of the other strand, and then added a bunch of little strands that pulled the, the one long strand back together, but from points that are distal, that is not, not next to each other on the single long strand, you could fold it, and then you could do it again and fold it more and fold it more and fold it up, 
into a little tiny shape. And the, the beauty of this is that it's automatic. You don't have to do anything. Just add the pieces, heat it, and cool it, and they all find each other and form a little particle that's nanoscale, the size of a virus or smaller, but with atomic precision. It, it's, hmm. it's amazing. Okay, it's like throwing a bunch of bolts into a room and coming back and there's your Bentley. Okay, it's it's just amazing. <laughs> so okay, then that, can yeah. we step to your your thing here with 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 the DNA conveying built-in genetic yep. instructions, or do or do we do we need a step before that? No, that's perfect. So we're so for the last couple of decades, people have been building a vast spectrum of shapes and and gadgets that do different things. We built a biosensor using this technology. Um, one of my former students, Divida Mathur, did that. And, um, but very few people have thought about, but DNA is the code of life. You know, the DNA makes the proteins that make us and, and sustain us and everything else that's alive on this planet. And so why, when you fold them up like this, are they still biologically active? That's the big question. Hmm. So uh, because I like to do... Um, I, I tell my students... Working with me is like jumping off a 100-meter platform and just trust me, there's water down there somewhere, okay? So this is a big high-risk experiment. But if it works out, it's going to be awesome, right? Yeah. So yeah, okay. Ch Chang was willing to do this, and he, he, uh, he, he, he took it on, and it, it took five years, and he uh, figured out a way to make single-stranded DNA that had ge genetic material in it, not just uh, sort of architectural elements. Um, and then tested it in a test tube to see, well, if we fold it all up, will a polymerase, a basic component of the DNA machinery, uh, DNA decoding machinery, recognize it? The answer was yes, and that was mind-blowing. And then we thought, well, now it's time to do the real experiment. We're going to put these particles into living cells and see if the cell can decode the DNA that's all folded up into this weird little shape. And the answer is yes, it can. So, okay. it's, you know, life is incredibly... <laughs> incredibly tenacious and uh, and um, I don't know what the other word would be mind blowing <laughs> <It's> a, <laughs> I'm still I'm still right, okay. I'm still mind blown yeah okay so so, so spin yeah. out the potential applications what does this mean what are the advantages <clears throat> of having dna nanoparticles that that carry genetic instructions for you know dna carries instructions for development functioning growth reproduction all of that Yep. What's the use of that in a nanoparticle? Well, I'll give you one example, um, and there, you know, we can have more. But um, we're in the era of gene editing now, so there are little molecular machines that y one can use to edit genes. And if you can edit a gene, you can fix a genetic error. Well, you know, and there's, there's it's always in the news. Um, the latest one was uh, sickle cell, you know, treatment for sickle cell using a gene editing approach. And so one of the challenges is how do you target a gene editor to a specific organ or tissue or cell type in a living system, in a whole body. You know, it'd be great to be able to inject with a syringe a gene editor, a little nanobot that goes and finds its target, edits the gene there, but, but doesn't affect anything else. And so the beauty mm -hmm. of this ability to manipulate DNA is that we can attach all kinds of little um, tags, little pieces of information to these nanoparticles that tells them, that, that, that helps direct them to a specific target. And so in the, in the grand view, the, the really you know, the 5,000 meter jump into a pool that may or may not have water would be to try to develop a biotherapeutic based on this approach 
that can be targeted to, a, to your liver or to your heart to fix a genetic anomaly there and make you healthy. Not just, not just treat, but actually cure a disease that way. Wow. In, in your lifetime, in my lifetime, will, will this actually happen with patients? It will. It, it's going to happen. I don't know if, the, if I don't know if our platform is going to be the, the 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 platform that is used by Johnson and Johnson, GlaxoSmithKline, or whoever does this. But it, the gene editing is happening. That's ongoing. And there are, you know, COVID opened up the whole the whole era of of nucleic acid based vaccines, right? So that's another application for for this type of platform technology. But I've learned over many years, and I've run a biotech company that that um, that. You can't predict, you know, you don't know what horse is going to win the race. You just know there are a bunch of really awesome horses in a race. And then um, usually a combination of, they kind of merge into one horse <laughs> that wins the race ultimately. Right. So, yeah. What you're describing seems like it could extend human lifespans. <laughs> Why do people always want to extend their lifespan? But yes, yeah. that kind of thing. I, I don't know, sure. but I, I, <laughs> yeah. I, I always want to have like, I want to hit 90 and croak, but hit 90 at you know while running a sprint or something. <laughs> I'm with you there. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. You know, lifespan, is, people are very interested in lifespan. I'm not very interested in lifespan because we have plenty of people on the planet. I'm interested in trying to optimize health span of the people who are extant on the planet and the newcomers as they emerge into our, into our planetary uh, mop population. So, so, yeah, keeping people healthy and then, you know, dying when you're supposed to would I think be optimal from my <laughs> my twisted point of view. Okay, so this gene bearing capacity with nanotechnology, um, maybe yeah. you've heard this question: What about the Frankenstein scenario? Are you letting something loose in a, <laughs> someone's bo- body that could <laughs> wreak havoc? Oh, I love that question because because every day you're you're <laughs> you're imbibing all kinds of pathogens and, and bacteria and viruses that could wreak havoc with your body. Um, so we're just doing this in a more programmable way. But there's always risk. You know, there's risk when you get in your car. If you didn't tighten those lug nuts, the wheel falls off while you're on I-80. And next thing you know, you're doing a flip off the freeway. So, <laughs> I, I mean, it, it, I, 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 everything should be done with some prudence and, and, and judge, good judgment. Um, I mean, that's sort of built into the, into the system. So, uh, no, this is... You know, it was way scarier shooting messenger RNA into my arm, which has happened maybe five or six times now since COVID emerged, than putting a nanoparticle into your body trying to find a, a that tries to find a specific cell type and cure a genetic disease. Okay, with a glimpse into the future yeah. of um, our medical breakthroughs, Eric Henderson, professor of genetics, development, and cell biology at ISU, worked with one of his students who's now a postdoc at the University of Wisconsin, Chang Yong Oh to create a DNA nanoparticle capable of expressing its own genetic code. Eric, you made that, you made me believe I understood that. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, sir. I appreciate that. (gasps) Take care. All all those years of biology 101. Yeah, thank you. I I will talk to you later. Coming up after a short break, NFL standout and Iowa native, place kicker Nate Kading with his thoughts on this weekend's Super Bowl. And CeCe Mitchell grooves us into the weekend. When your news buzz continues, it's River to River from IPR News. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.
It's your Friday News Buzz edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Well, this Sunday's Super Bowl in Las Vegas will see San Francisco get another shot at the Kansas City Chiefs uh, four years after their first meeting in the NFL's biggest game. Uh, And while there is certainly a Chiefs fan base here in Iowa, uh, we have to think that much of the state will be backing the former Iowa State Cyclones quarterback, uh, Brock Purdy, and former Iowa Hawkeyes tight end, George Kittle, of course, on the 49ers. Joining us now to talk about this year's Super Bowl and the Iowa ties to it, award-winning NFL place kicker Nate Kading, a standout at West High School in Iowa City. Played college football, of course, for the Hawkeyes. Majority of his NFL career with the San Diego Chargers, a two-time pro bowler. Nate Kading, what a delight to have you on again. Yeah, you bet, Ben. Thanks for having me. So let's talk about Brock Purdy, first of all, the quarterback for San Francisco. I guess you'd agree, one of the most underestimated people on the planet. <laughs> after <laughs> yeah. high school, after high school, skipped over by the m- more major college football programs, uh, but while playing at ISU, broke the records there, has the most wins of any quarterback in ISU history, the first quarterback to take the Cyclones to four straight bowl games, been after college, taken last in the 2022 NFL draft. I hear, uh, Nate, uh, there's a name for the last person taken called Mr. Irrelevant. <laughs> That's right. Yep. It, it's an amazing story, isn't it? I mean, this is coming from a, a dyed-in-the-wool Hawkeye fan here, born and raised in Iowa City and a, and a Hawkeye, but it's it's been an amazing story to watch Brock coming from the last pick in the draft, Mr. Irrelevant, as you said, to, to this rise. And, of course, he you know, he got his chance due to a, uh, a couple injuries there at the 49ers a year or two ago. And he, he, he took advantage of the opportunity and he's in an amazing um, offense out there with, in a, you know, like we'll talk about also George Kittle, the tight end, but it's uh, what an awesome story and a great representative on and off the field of, of the state of Iowa. And, you know, he, you look at him and he's kind of unassuming and you follow some things like some people probably do, whether it's on social media and, he may or may not look the part of uh, your prototypical NFL uh, quarterback or superstar, but the the numbers and what he's doing on the field and the and the wins he's leading his team to is certainly certainly representative of that. So it's a uh, it's it's a fun story, and um, I know this Hawkeye will be rooting rooting for that Cyclone on Sunday for sure. Yeah. Okay. Going from barely drafted to a a championship parade in less than two calendar years. Uh, of all his strengths, uh, which do you see as most relevant for Sunday's uh, game? To me, the the observation really is around his composure. I mean, for a guy that hasn't been in the NFL, you know, like you said, just for a couple, three years, and just his his ability to make decisions. And, and I always tell people that there's no harder position in all of professional sports than being a quarterback. Not only do you have the the pressure and the, the, what you need to do physically, but you also, it's a very cerebral position, right? And there's a lot of different things that you have to do and, and think about uh, at the, the, the snap of the ball and the three seconds that have to happen between the ball snapped and when you got to make a, make a decision on who to throw it to. And Kyle Shanahan, the, the head coach of the 49ers, and the offensive coordinator is a really innovative guy. So I know he tries to put Brock and the team in, in the right position, but really it's just been super impressive just to see him adjust to, to that kind of offense on the fly. And then in the NFC championship game made a bunch of plays on his feet too. He ran for some big first downs. And so not only is he throwing the ball well, but he's also making plays with his feet. So he, um, I know he surprised some people along the way, but uh, 
come Sunday, I don't think there'll be any surprises if he if he leads the team to the championship. Okay, let's shift over to George Kittle, a tight end for the San Francisco 49ers. Uh, as a former Hawkeye yourself, uh, I'm sure you followed Kittle's rise. Of course, his father, Bruce Kittle, from those Rose Bowl teams under Hayden Fry. Uh, what are his particular strengths at, at tight end that you want to point out? Yeah, George is awesome. He, uh, he was an Iowa City kid. He kind of bounced around with his dad. Bruce was a... Uh... Um, lived in Iowa City for a while, so I actually knew George as a, as a kid growing up a little bit. Then his dad, Bruce, went and coached in at Oklahoma for a while with Bobby Stoops. So known George for a long time, and obviously had a great career at Iowa with C.J. Beathard and some of those great teams. But you know, he's he's maybe a little bit more of a personality. He's out there a little bit more uh, boisterous and um, flamboyant in, in some ways than than Brock might be. But again, a, a great representative of the state, and I think people to watch on Sunday. Not only does George make the big plays catching the ball like a receiver a tight end does but he's also known for his his blocks and uh you know most notably was the, again the nfc championship game he had a great pancake block on aiden hutchinson the star detroit lions defensive end and george is known to be a really physical guy that can that can do all the dimensions of the of the tight end position block and catch and running after he catches the ball so he's uh, an explosive explosive player so i think it'd be it'd be pretty special for us iowans if we can have a cyclone hitting a hawkeye for uh a Super Bowl touchdown. I, I'm guessing I don't have the data in front of me, but that, that's got to be a first if we can pull that off on Sunday. Wow, that might mend all the ill will between the two schools. You think? <laughs> I don't that, know about that. that I don't know about in the that. Super Bowl. Maybe for a few minutes. Maybe for a few minutes. But uh, it's it's certainly pretty cool to watch. I understand uh, George Kittle is fighting through a toe injury. I guess good that he's not a, a place kicker like you were. <laughs> yeah. Right. That's. Uh, Yes, yeah, us, us kickers are um, definitely not quite in harm's way like those guys are. But I think that's a, you know, it's an interesting point. I mean, the, the length of the season for these guys is is crazy. I mean, you you start the second, third week of July, and here we are going into the first, second weekend in February, and the amount of uh, exposure that they're putting in their bodies through Sunday week after week in practice, and not I can I can guarantee you, you turn the TV on, it looks like they're going a million miles an hour, but they've been through a lot over the course of the last six months or so and it's uh it's it's impressive you got the adrenaline rolling on the biggest stage and i'm sure that toe will feel uh a lot better once the national anthem sung and and the ball gets snapped and and georgia gets going out there <laughs> okay nate you've played in a number of um, high profile games playoff games how do you as a player uh, mentally prepare for such a high pressure game or is it just another game uh, a little bit amped up but not much or is it something completely different when you get to this level it does get a little different we didn't in my nine-year career didn't make it to the Super Bowl we made it to the AFC championship game and uh, lost in uh, at New England uh, to Tom Brady and his and Bill Belichick in one of their undefeated seasons there um but yeah, once you once you get into that those moments, especially the Super Bowl and the you know conference championship games, there's it's really you know the, what happens sort of those six days in in between Sunday to Sunday is where a lot of the distraction happens. But as an athlete, when you you know you get off the bus, you get into the stadium, you get to your locker room, that there becomes sort of this sense of relief in some ways, where all the hype and all the the noise sort of falls to the wayside, and now you're just focused on what you've been doing as a as a little kid on the field growing up and um, now granted there's a lot more pomp and circumstance and it's also another interesting thing in the Super Bowl especially the halftime's longer they got the big halftime show and they've got all the rigmarole that happens before the game with extra national anthems and people on the field and those sort of things so there's a 
the cadence of that game uh, can be a little bit different. So some people adjust better than others. And of course, Brock uh, Purdy, it's going to be his first Super Bowl, and he's going against Patrick Mahomes, who's been there, I think, you know, four four times just in the last six years or so. So uh, there's a little bit of that that newness to it that I think uh, could be at a bit, a bit of a disadvantage for Brock, but um, it's it's unique. There's nothing nothing else like it, and it's the I think literally the one of the biggest stages, if not the biggest stages in all of sports. So we'll um, it, it's always fun to watch how watch how it all plays out. Give us some insights, Nate, on what the teams have been doing since the end of the playoffs to get ready. Does that vary from team to team? Is there a a recipe that most teams follow or not? Yeah, I think there is, and there's probably some nuance to it. Uh, I'm sure there is in terms of how you handle the Super Bowl. Has been a, you know, there's been a week in between the uh, the preparation week and the and when the conference championship happens. So uh, usually the guys will play those conference championship games. The the program will give them a little extra time off, so they probably had through the middle of last week to to rest and rehab and and then game plan a little bit. Start putting in the game plan package and the the coaching staff and the the scouts will be working on the game plan and then a little, a couple extra days to kind of install that and then into a regular game week. NFL players are really creatures of habit and the coaches are, so they like their, their routine. So they like to have their game week where that you do the exact same thing on a Monday of a game week, just like you did every other Monday for the whole year. So they've been in their regular sort of game weeks and, uh, and just getting and prepped and ready to go. And, and the coaches do a really good job of eliminating as many distractions as possible. And, uh, letting those guys just kind of focus on their preparation and getting their bodies ready to to go out and play. So it'll be it'll it'll be a fun matchup. And of course, being in Las Vegas for the first time will add a little extra flair to it, I'm sure. So it's uh, it'll it'll be a fun game. I think just in the last ten years since I've been out of the NFL, I think it may be the most anticipated Super Bowl just because all the different things. And of course, now you got the Taylor Swift factor and uh, you know the Chiefs oh, yeah. really beginning a dynasty and all of those sort of things. And of course, as us Iowans, we've got some native sons out there competing as well. So it's uh it's must, must watch TV. I would say. Yeah. What, what do you make of all these Super Bowl conspiracy theories involving Taylor Swift, uh, right wing <laughs> critics saying their relationship, she's on far too much. She's shown too much. It's part of a plot to rig the NFL's championship game, help get president Biden reelected. What do you make of all that? <laughs> I think. I think like a lot of things it's, in today's world, there's, there's more conspiracy than there is theory to it. It would be my, uh, my observation, but it's, <laughs> it's amazing. If you, if you see the data around viewership and um, you know, TV rankings and the NFL really does hold a unique spot in American culture and, and pop culture. And when you start layering in the, the person of the year and Taylor Swift and all of that dating the star tight end for the chiefs and, I mean, you can't write the script. It, maybe it makes you think for a second that someone is actually trying to write the script, but um, it, it makes <laughs> right. it, it makes it that much more fun. And I think that's the cool thing about football is that, unlike baseball, you're not playing 120, 140 games a year. There's there's 16 of them, and there's a week that goes in between each game, and there's a lot of opportunity to to weave storylines and human interest stories and those sort of things into the game. And I think that's what really ends up captivating people is 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 all the kind of the, the human stories behind what's happening and uh, there's just that extra room to kind of to breathe and, and and make the drama around it and, and this game on Sunday doesn't lack any drama that's for sure yeah uh, Nate I think you've already weighed in on this but to be perfectly clear you're rooting for the 49ers and and um, ISU's Purdy and the, the, the Hawkeyes Kittle huh 
Yeah, I mean, you can't. I mean, I know there's a lot of Chiefs in, in Iowa, but, uh, I mean, how, how do you not? Um, that's that's an amazing story, and we we are certainly – in the Cading house, we've got uh, some big football fans and our kids here, and, of course, we're, we're rooting for the – the prominent Hawkeyes there. So we're, we're, we're Niners fans on Sunday, no doubt about it. And um, we are most certainly pulling for that cyclone to Hawkeye touchdown connection. That's, that's top on the list. Thanks for making time for us. Um, Nate Kading, award-winning NFL place kicker. Uh, You and your family uh, enjoy Sunday as the rest of the, most of the rest of the country will be doing (laughs) in front of their TVs. Yep, absolutely. Thank you. And that just about does it for this News Buzz edition of River to River on this date, uh, February 9th, 2024. Whether you're looking for old favorites or the best in new music, IPR Studio One has it seven nights a week in the evenings. And CeCe Mitchell is with us, one of the Studio One hosts, along with Tony Daner and Mark Simmett. Hi, CeCe. Hey there, Ben. You are here to groove us into the weekend. What do you got? I sure am. So this first track I have to share with you today, it's by the band Camera Obscura. They just announced that they're releasing their first album in 10 years. It's going to be called Look to the East, Look to the West. So that's super exciting news. They're a really solid indie band. And the single I have to share with you today, it's the first single off that new record, Big Love. It was a big love, she said. That's why it took 10 years to get her She peek up the room We heard you cry It's time to say goodbye It was a big love She said Kind of big love That took a stall on your bed We watched you break The more she would I love the twangy sound of that tune. Camera Obscura with Big Love. We have time for one more, Cece. The uh, second track I have to share with you today, it's the latest single from the British band The Last Dinner Party. So The Last Dinner Party, they're going to play the Hinterland Festival this year on Sunday this year. It's going to be a really cool set, I think. They're an all-girl band. I, I, of course, love that about them. And they've just got this really great energy that I think is going to make for a really good set. So this is their latest single. It's called The Feminine Urge.
Feminine Urge by The Last Dinner Party. Cece, thanks for that one. Well, whether it's indie rock, singer-songwriters, blues, local, regional music, you have it all uh, with IPR Studio One, seven nights a week at 7 o'clock. Also, All Access, that's a fun show to tune into, uh, 1 to 4 p.m. on Saturdays. Cece, thanks for grooving us into the weekend. Thanks for having me, Ben. Today's program produced by Danny Gear with help from Sean McLean. Our executive producer is Catherine Perkins. Have a wonderful weekend. So